Well, if you would, open your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 19. If you don't have a Bible with you, we've got some extras there on the back table. You're welcome to grab one of those. And if you don't own a Bible, take one of those with you. Those are there for you. Revelation chapter 19. Now, before we dive in there too heavily this morning, I've got a pop quiz for you. What is the oldest prophecy in the Bible uttered by a prophet? It's not in Genesis. So this prophecy deals with the second coming. And that's what we're going to be seeing in chapter 19. Not this morning, but next Sunday. The second coming, the oldest prophecy uttered by a prophet is found in Jude 14 and 15. And these are the words of Enoch. He lived before the flood. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. This details the second coming. So what can we take away from these two verses in Jude? Well, it seems the questions who, what, and why are answered here. Who? We're seeing here that Jesus will return to the earth with a certain group of people, the saints. And that's you and me. This event is distinct from the rapture where Christ comes for the saints. Here he comes with the saints in the second coming. The question what is answered? It's judgment. That is what is happening. It says to execute judgment on all. That's the purpose of the second coming. His second coming is to judge the nations, just like we saw in Psalm 2. And the question why is answered. And it seems that Enoch has a vocabulary problem because the only word he knows is ungodly. It happens over and over in this these two verses. And of course I'm being facetious, but there will be ungodliness abounding at the time of Christ's return. And that lines up immaculately with what we've been seeing in Revelation. The ungodliness is abounding. Now, Revelation 19, this is the chapter where we see this uh, coming of Christ in power and great glory. And there are two suppers that are mentioned in this chapter. One is in verses 1 through 10 that we'll look at this morning. The second is in the last half of the chapter. But there's two suppers mentioned here. And we certainly don't want to confuse these two either. They're very different, and we'll see that as we go along. One is the marriage supper of the Lamb. The other is a feast of flesh for the birds. Very different (laughs) events. One you want to be invited to, and the other, 
Not so much. The first eight or so verses in chapter 19 just contain praise to God. And it's like the crescendo of praise in Revelation is contained in these few verses. Alleluia is an adoring exclamation of praise. Praise the Lord. Alleluia. There is no translation of the word Alleluia because it is universal among languages. Whether you're speaking Greek, Spanish, or English, it's pronounced Alleluia. That kind of makes me wonder if this specific praise is actually heavenly in nature. It transcends human language. Is this a word of heavenly origin? Alleluia. This word occurs only four times in the New Testament. All four are within the first six verses of chapter 19 here in Revelation. The only time we see Alleluia in the New Testament. And there's certainly plenty to get excited about. You know, this is an exclamatory praise. Alleluia. There is plenty to get excited about here. Things are wrapping up on the earth. God's wrath at this time has already been poured out on the earth. Babylon has fallen, and the wicked men of the earth are being gathered together at Armageddon for this final battle. And the second half of chapter 19 tells us what happens at that, quote, battle. But, spoiler alert, Jesus wins. This battle isn't much of a battle at all. Verse 1 in chapter 19, I'm going to go ahead and read through the first 10 verses here. After these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments, because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication. And he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. Again they said, Alleluia. Her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who sat on the throne, saying, Amen, Alleluia. Then a voice came from the throne, saying, Praise our God, all you his servants and those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thunderings, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, See that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Verse 1, after these things. 
again, it's this phrase, metatauta, after these things or hereafter. And this is the metatauta we've all been waiting for. This is after the fall of Babylon, after God's wrath is poured out. It only gets better from here. And the next few weeks are going to be awesome. If you stuck with us as we've moved through the tribulation and all of the judgment that comes with that time period, congratulations, because we've made it out of that. And we've still got some birds to feast on flesh in the next few verses, but for the most part, we're out of all of this, and we're coming into the glorious revelation of Jesus Christ, his unveiling, his return his kingdom, and onward. Have you been making note of the rejoicing in Revelation? There's not a lot. There's not much rejoicing to be done throughout the whole book. And there are only three instances that actually use the word rejoice. The first is rejoicing from those earth dwellers, the people that are on the earth during the tribulation, When the beast is able to kill the two prophets, or the two witnesses, they rejoiced and made merry. Revelation 11.10, and those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another, because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. So they're rejoicing, they're happy, but that's the earth dwellers. That's not the Christians, that's not the saints. The second instance as in Revelation 12.10, calling to the heavens and to those in them to rejoice over the fact that the overcomers have overcome the wicked one by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. Now, this rejoicing is from the heavens and those who occupy the heavens. The third instance of rejoicing we saw last week, Revelation 18.20, when those in heaven were called to rejoice over the destruction of Babylon. And now in chapter 19, praise is literally ringing through heaven. And this great multitude breaks out in this climactic doxology of Revelation. Bringing praise to the one who deserves it. Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. In the original text, the definite article appears before each of these descriptions of praise. And that would read like this. The salvation and the glory and the power belong to the Lord our God. Not some glory not some salvation, not some power. The, the entirety of salvation, all of the glory, all of the power belong to the Lord our God. The only salvation, the only glory, and the only power belong to the Lord our God. For, that indicates causation. For, True and righteous are his judgments. 
You know what we can learn from this praise? If nothing else, we should take note of what's not here. What is conspicuous in its absence? If you take nothing else away from studying this praise, take note that there is no questioning of why. We don't see, why, God, did you let this thing happen to me? Why, God, would you judge this person or this situation this way? Why? It's not there. True and righteous are his judgments. True insinuates veracity. It's genuineness and sincerity. Righteous insinuates that his judgments are just and fair. There is no questioning the fairness of his judgments at this time. Only praise at his justice and his sincerity. Because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication. And this is a very overt reference to Babylon the great harlot that we saw in chapter 17. And he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. All the way back in Revelation 6, when that fifth seal was opened, John saw a multitude under the altar in heaven. And these were the souls of those whose blood has been shed for their testimony in Jesus Christ the martyrs. They cried out, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer. They were told to wait just a little while longer. Well, at this point, in chapter 19, that little while has now passed, and their deaths have been avenged. And there's a really interesting law that gives permission to the nearest male relative of someone who had been intentionally killed to avenge that family member's blood by killing the killer. And they were called the the avenger of blood in this Mosaic law. And you can reference Numbers 35, 19, and Numbers 26 and 27, as well as Deuteronomy 19, 11, and 12 for more on the avenger of blood. But it seems that this is now God acting as the avenger of blood on behalf of the martyrs. It's an interesting dynamic that was set up in the Old Testament law that is now fulfilled in Christ. Verse 3, again they said, Alleluia, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And this seems to be another reference to Babylon. We know that Babylon was destroyed with fire, both that harlot, the religious system, and the political and economic system, both destroyed by fire. If you'll remember, the harlot 
was burned by the Tin King Federation of the Antichrist. They burned that religious system. And then that political system, that economic system, was actually judged directly by God. And he burned that system. Hallelujah. Her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sat on the throne, saying, Amen. Alleluia. Interestingly enough, this is the last mention of the 24 elders in the book of Revelation, at least by that name. I think that from now on, they'll be referred to as the bride. It seems rather instructive that the 24 elders don't show up with the bride. The 24 elders stop being mentioned when the bride starts being mentioned. It seems like they're almost referring to the same group of people. And that seems to bolster our position that the 24 elders represent the church. The bride also represents the church. Verse 5, Then a voice came from the throne, saying, Praise our God, all you his servants and those who fear him, both small and great. Now, this voice comes from the throne and calls for praise. And that voice is answered by this voice like a great multitude in verse 6. As the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty thunderings. Now, most of us have probably heard great rushing water or that thunder that shakes the house in the middle of the night, wakes everybody up. That's what he's hearing right now. The water that's rushing so loud that you can't even hear yourself speak. It drowns out all other noise. That's what he's hearing. Except what he's hearing is intelligible language. It's not just noise coming in. He can actually discern what's being said. But the thrust of that voice is so great that it sounds like a mighty rushing water or an intense thundering. It says, praise our God, all you, his servants, and those who fear him, both small and great. And I love that, both small and great. Because I'm a small, micros, chimegas, micro and mega, small and great. It doesn't really matter if you're small or great in God's economy. There is room for everyone if you'll just accept the sacrifice that was made on your behalf. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty thunderings. And this is what this voice is saying. Alleluia. For the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, 
and his wife has made herself ready. Again, Alleluia. Why? Because the Lord God omnipotent reigns. And that word omnipotent just means all-powerful. It's finally time. He has overcome the world and everything that's come along with it. And it is his time to reign his creation. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory. For the marriage of the lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. There's a wife in view here. Who is this bride? Is it Israel? No. That actually mixes metaphors. Israel is called the wife of Yahweh. And we see references to this in Isaiah 54, verses 1, 4, and 5, as well as other places. But she's portrayed as widowed and divorced. And that presents a problem. Israel is also called a harlot in Ezekiel 16, 35, and 36. A high priest could not marry a divorced or widowed woman. And Christ is our high priest. He wouldn't be able to take a widowed and divorced Israel as his bride. And the law that talks about that is in Leviticus 21, 10, 13, and 14. A high priest could not marry a widowed or divorced woman. Is this bride the church? Yes. This bride pictured is the church. In 2 Corinthians 11.2, Paul refers to the church as a chaste virgin, as he does in Ephesians 5. 2 Corinthians 11.2 reads, For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband, speaking to the church, that I may present you, the church, as a chaste virgin to Christ. Ephesians 5, that's... It really goes on that whole chapter, so I'm not going to read it to you. But Paul also talks about the church as a chaste virgin. And he compares the church and Christ to a husband and wife. And there's some really instructive things that you can pull for your marriage from Ephesians 5. John the Baptist identified Jesus as the bridegroom in John 3.29. John 3.29 reads, He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, referring to himself, John the Baptist, he's the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. John went before Jesus. He proclaimed the way. And when he saw Jesus, He said, Behold, the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. John identifies Jesus as the bridegroom. And just to clarify, that's a different John than the John who wrote Revelation. That was John the Baptist. Now, the Jewish perspective on prophecy as a whole differs a little bit from our Western perspective. 
Um, we tend to look at prophecy as prophecy and fulfillment. There's this very dichotomous relationship with prophecy. And of course, there is fulfillment of prophecy. That is true. But the Jewish perspective puts a high emphasis on patterns. It's not just prophecy and fulfillment, but there are patterns that are created in prophecy. And I believe that we can look at the pattern set up by the Jewish wedding traditions for some insight into the history and destiny of the church, the bride of Christ. In John 14, 3, Jesus says, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. He uses that verb, receive. And that word was usually used of a bridegroom taking or receiving a wife to himself. And that was well understood in their culture. Um, Well understood enough that I think Jesus purposefully used that verb to describe his taking of the church. The same word is used in Matthew one twenty, by the angel speaking to Joseph in his dream. This angel said, Do not be afraid to take, there's that verb, to you, Mary, for your wife. It's also used in Matthew one twenty four. Just a few verses later, Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him, his wife. It's all the same word here. So why did Jesus use that word that was understood at the time to relate to a wedding? Well, it seems that he was trying to draw up this analogy between Jewish marriage customs and his own coming to receive the church. The whole process of a Jewish wedding and that ceremony is much more drawn out than our Western weddings today. You know, we're done in a few hours. This thing lasted literally years between the betrothal and the actual ceremony and the feast. The groom would travel to the prospective bride's home to establish a marriage covenant with the bride's family. And they call this covenant the ketubah, or betrothal. This is when he would pay the purchase price, the dowry, and at this time, the bride is legally set apart for that marriage. They are legally married once this covenant is established. But at this time, no intimate relations would be allowed. So legally married, but not in practice. This was the stage of Joseph and Mary's relationship when she got the news that she was to be with child. That's why Joseph was so scared, because they were not supposed to be relations yet. After this covenant was established, the groom would promise to return, and then he would go back to his father's house. During this time that they were separated, he would prepare living quarters 
for he and his bride. As he arrived, he and his male escorts would wait outside the bride's house until she came out to meet them. So he's gone away after making this covenant. He's spent, it was usually about a year, making preparations, living conditions being built. He comes back to receive his bride, and it was unannounced. She didn't know when exactly he was going to return. She knew the the kind of time and season. It was about a year, but she didn't know the day or the hour. When he arrived, he would come with some of his friends, some male escorts. They would wait outside of the bride's house for the bride to come out when she was ready, and then they would take her back with them to the father's house. Yeah, it's already, you're seeing where we're going. When she came out, they would both return to his father's house and would hide away in a room that they called the bridal chamber. And this event was known as the seven days of the bridal chamber. They would hole up in this bridal chamber for seven days. They would also have a feast that would last for seven days as the friends and family celebrate the wedding. And at the time that these seven days came to a close, the groom would come out of the chamber with his bride unveiled so that everyone could see his bride. And of course, this is a picture of Christ in the church. The marriage is fulfilled in Christ. And I've got a little graphic for you. This is how this marriage is fulfilled in Christ. We have a covenant established with Christ. 1 Corinthians 11.25 In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. That's when the covenant was established. The purchase price for the bride was paid. 1 Corinthians 6 19 and 20. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. We were purchased with a price. The bride, during this betrothal period, was to be set apart. And there are multiple references to this setting apart. Ephesians 5, 25 through 27 is one. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify, that is, set apart, and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be 
holy, set apart, and without blemish. A reminder of this marriage covenant was instituted in the institution of communion. And we've already read that 1 Corinthians 11, 25, and 26 passage. The bridegroom left for the Father's house. Jesus left the earth, the home of his bride, and went back to his Father's house. Mark 16, 19. So then, after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. You can also reference Acts 1, 9. And John 14, 3 is probably one of the most overt references to a Jewish wedding made by Jesus himself. John 14, 3. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So Christ, in going back to his father's house, is actually preparing a place for his bride. And we know that he created the earth and the heavens in six days. It's been almost 2,000 years that he's been preparing this dwelling place for us. Can you imagine the glory and splendor that's going to accompany this new house, new mansion, as he calls it. An escort is to accompany Jesus upon his return to gather his bride. Now, we're talking about the rapture here. This is not the second coming. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. When that bridegroom would return to the bride's house, wait outside for her to come out, those escorts that brought him there would announce his presence, and they would actually do so with a trumpet. I'm sure that the bride's family wasn't very happy about that, waking them all up in the middle of the night. But they would announce their presence. And likewise, the presence of Christ will be announced. The bridegroom waits outside the home of the bride for her. He waits. Jesus comes in the air at the rapture, not making a touchdown onto the earth as believers are caught up to be with him. He doesn't enter the home, but he comes just outside the home. And that's 1 Thessalonians 4.17. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus, we shall always be with the Lord. And the banquet, the marriage supper. Here in Revelation 19.9, we also have references in Isaiah 25, verses 6 through 10. And Matthew 22 is especially interesting. This is a parable that Jesus told about a wedding feast. And we know that these parables mean something more than just what they have on the surface. These parables that Jesus told actually 
communicated, and it's funny because their purpose was actually to, to shroud in mystery the things of heaven. And you can, you can look at that in Matthew 13 if you don't believe me. But this was not to make things more known. It was actually to hide some things. Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven here in Matthew 22. The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged, who arranged a marriage for his son. And he sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. Now, you've got a problem here. You're inviting people to this marriage feast that you've already prepared. It says later he's already killed the oxen and the calves. The food's prepared. He's just waiting for people to come. And it's really sad the way that the people are invited treat the messengers. They beat them, stone them, and kill them. What a way to to welcome somebody trying to invite you to a big feast. So the king who prepared this marriage feast sent more servants. He said, all right, more of you, go, try again. They handed out the invitations, same thing. They were killed, stoned, just treated very, very poorly. Eventually, the king thought, well, they'll respect my son more than my servants. So he sent his son to invite these people to come to his wedding feast. What do they do? They killed the son. In verse 9 of Matthew 22, let's start in verse 8. Then the king said to his servants, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found both bad and good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, friend, how do you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away and cast him into outer darkness. And right there, it kind of switches. You see the underlying truth that's being communicated here. Bind him hand and foot, take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. There are spiritual truths being communicated here. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Many are called. Many receive an invitation to the the marriage supper, but few are chosen. In contrast to how many have been invited, not very many will show up. But still, it says that the wedding hall was filled with guests. This banquet, this marriage supper, you have to have the right clothes. That guy that they kicked out, 
said he didn't have a marriage garment. What in the world is that all about? Verse 7, let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Here we have the wedding garment. Fine linen, clean and bright. And this is an idiomatic use of fine linen. It says that this fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Now, I don't want you to let this phrasing, the righteous acts of the saints, trip you up. Because we're not talking about a works-based salvation. They weren't granted salvation based on their righteous acts. But once you're saved, your faith should be demonstrated by works. There should be works that accompany a saving faith in Jesus Christ. And James writes all about this in chapter 2 of his epistle. He says, faith without works is dead. A living, breathing, active faith is demonstrated by how you live. The translation righteous acts comes from an attempt at translating the word righteous in the plural. So literally it would read the righteousnesses of the saints. But righteous acts is actually not a bad translation either. The Bible speaks of many crowns that Christians may be awarded. And there's a whole list of passages that talk about crowns. 2 Timothy 2.5, 2 Timothy 4.8, James 1.12, 1 Peter 5.4, Revelation 2.10, to name several. At the Bema Seat of Christ... The Bema Seat Judgment, he will award these crowns based on our righteous works. Again, this is after salvation. These crowns are a reward. Judgment Seat, that phrase is translated from one Greek word that is Bema. That's used in Romans 14.10 and 2 Corinthians 5.10. And in John's day, a bema was a raised platform that the judges of an athletic contest would sit on to view the games. They made sure that the contestants followed the rules, and they also presented the awards to the contestants. It's an interesting picture being drawn here for us. The race was a place of testing and reward. And Paul likens the Christian life with a race. And the Bema seat of Christ will not be a place of condemnation, but of reward. That is where the believers are judged. 
the believer does not need to worry about God's judgment on sin because his sins have already been judged on a wooden cross some 2,000 years ago. The settlement for our sins as believers was taken care of on the cross. But the things we do for Christ after salvation will be rewarded in heaven. And here in our text this morning, they're displayed as fine linen, clean, and bright. The righteous acts of the saints, this righteousness is actually imputed to them by Christ. It's not their own righteousness, not that gets them there, but it's Christ's righteousness that gets them there. Verse 9, then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. This is the first of two suppers in this chapter, as I mentioned, and you definitely don't want to get them confused. In this one, you're a guest of honor, but in the next one, you are the main course. And that's not where you want to be. Further, there's room for more guests in both of these feasts. We want to make sure we're on the right side of this. And I'm actually not being facetious for a change. There is actually a feast of flesh in verses 17 and 18 in chapter 19. And an angel calls the birds to gather for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. This is the the meal for the birds after Armageddon. That's what that is. There's only one supper that I want to be at, and that ain't it. Verse 10, And I fell at his feet, to worship him. But he said to me, see that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. John here falls at the feet of this angel. But what does the angel do? He stops John from worshiping him. This is the reaction of all the angels of God. They do not accept worship. Fallen angels, on the other hand, love worship. And there's just something in John that longs to worship. You know, and I don't blame him. Look at all of what he has just seen been a part of, heard, all these colors, these different scenes that are literally out of this world. He just wants to worship. And we all have that tendency to worship. As humans, we long for something greater than ourselves. And when we identify something more powerful than we are, we tend to latch onto it. 
And this is one of the reasons that the world of the occult is so attractive to so many people. Because it is a higher power, higher than us. But we are told as Christians to test the spirits, to see if something is from God or not from God. And unfortunately, not everyone cares about the source of supernatural power, whether it comes from God or Satan. But we know who wins in the end. And we do want to take care that we're on Jesus' side. The entirety of Scripture makes it very clear that there is black and there is white. You're either with him or you're against him. And a immense lie that's being perpetuated today is that there is a gray area. You know, it's, it's Christian yoga. It's, it's Christian tarot cards. There's all these Christianized versions of things. And those are extreme examples. You know, I want to watch this movie. And it's not too bad, but, you know... Maybe God would be okay with it, you know, just one time through. Just give it a quick watch. You're either with him or you're against him. And you know, if you have the Holy Spirit, you know what you're getting into. There is no question deep down. We want to be careful that we take Jesus' side. And that should be our heart's desire. If we are born again into the body of Christ, we should want to glorify him with everything that we do. There shouldn't be a a tendency to skirt the edge. If you're looking at the Grand Canyon, you can enjoy it from about six feet away. You know, you don't need to be right here looking over and trying to balance you can enjoy that from a few steps back. And several steps back. <laughs> and that should be the intent of our hearts. If we are with Christ, we should want to glorify him. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Now, what he's not saying is that he's been redeemed by Jesus the same way John has. Angels cannot be redeemed. Once they make their decision, they are set in that decision. They always have the opportunity to walk away from God. We saw a big rebellion of angels in Genesis 6. They walked away from their creator. Here's the difference between us and angels in this respect. Angels were created, fully matured. They do not reproduce. There is a fixed number of them. They were created by God with knowledge of him. They saw him. They talked with him. They interacted with Almighty God. When we're born, that's not the case. We can't see God. We can't interact with them in the same way that they could. They were given knowledge. And when they rebelled, they rebelled 
with knowledge. We were born into sin. Sin literally, I believe, runs in our DNA. We were born into that. We can be redeemed out of that. They rebel with knowledge. We rebel in ignorance. And because it's our natural propensity. That's why we're different from the angels in that humans can be redeemed. Our souls can spend eternity with Christ even though we're born into a fallen state. So he's not saying that he has the same testimony of Jesus that John does, but he is saying, I know Jesus just like you do, and I'm not him. I am creation just like you are. You see, even angels with their unfathomable abilities and their way of locomotion even, they're so much more powerful than we are. We can't even shake a stick at that. But Jesus is that much more powerful than they are times 10,000. It's a difference between creator and creation. You know, I can make, um, create, I can assemble a little Play-Doh model of a human. And that's made in my likeness. You know, he's got a head, a couple arms, a couple legs, a torso. We're good to go. I'm not very good with Play-Doh, so that wouldn't work out very well. But my abilities, compared with his abilities, it's not comparable. I'm much more capable of everything. That is the difference between a creator and creation. And even that illustration has limits because I myself am finite. God, our creator, is infinite. This angel is part of creation with John. See that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant. They serve God just like we are supposed to and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Hey, I know Jesus too, and I'm not him. So don't worship me, worship him. Worship God. And this is that very profound statement. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. That's the whole prophetic message. Jesus Christ. What is the book of Revelation all about? It's not the revealing of the end times. Verse 1 of chapter 1 tells us exactly what it's about. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is all about him. Though Revelation is a prophetic book in its scope, the whole thing points to Jesus as does the entirety of Scripture. It's really all about him. The avenger of blood, an obscure law in the Old Testament, points to Jesus. Every law relates to Jesus. It's all foreshadowing the substance, which is Christ. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, I do want to make something clear. That this morning, 
you can accept your invitation to the wedding feast. It's already been extended to you. But you have to RSVP. And you have to make it known, that's my intended destination. You have to believe that Jesus is Christ. He is God's son. And he came to the earth to die for us. But he didn't stop there. He was raised from the dead. He rose. He went to be with his father. And he's preparing a place for us there. He will come again. We will be caught up to be with him at the rapture. From then on, we're never separated from him again. Unbelievers must die the second death. We don't ever have to experience that separation from God. Once we are with him, that's all she wrote. You know, it's, it's interesting, too, thinking about all of the passages that relate to marriage. A wife has to leave her family to be cleaved to her husband. She never goes back into that family. Perpetually, she is with her husband. This morning, you can accept your invitation to the wedding supper. The wedding feast of the Lamb. And that is the prime directive for you Star Trek fans. That is what it's all about. Living your life with Christ. Because once you accept him, you're sealed. Your salvation is sealed. But that is just the beginning. After you accept him as the Lord and Savior of your life, You live for him. I don't remember who said it, but someone said it's easier to die for Christ than to live for him. I don't know. It is tough to live for Christ because the world, our flesh, and Satan are constantly at war with Christ and us. But we do have the power to overcome them. How do we overcome the wicked one? Revelation 12 tells us, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony in Jesus Christ. Let's close our study in the word of prayer. I'm also going to bless the chili so so that when you get over there, we can go right to it, okay? Please pray with me.